0: This is our world, this is
1: our time, these are our plans,
0: we're gonna let them shine, this is our place, in the human
1: Good morning, great men and women of God. My name is Jonathan. I'm the executive pastor, and uh, we are winding down in our series in Philippians. I am going to miss that video. Without my shiny head, how will I know when to walk out on stage? But we only have two weeks left, so enjoy it while it's there. Um, uh, We've been studying Philippians, and we've called the series This Is Us. And the reason for that is we've recognized that all of us long for an us, That's all deep inside. We want these connected relationships where we don't feel alone, where we're connected to other people. And what we've discovered or what we've talked about over these last seven weeks is that's God's dream for us too. In fact, what he's trying to create here is deeply connected relationships with one another where he is at the center. That's what he wants for us. And so we've been reading Philippians, which is a letter from one friend to a group of friends. It's from Paul to his friends in Philippi, and we're looking over Paul's shoulder because he has found an us with these people. Um, he's connected with them, and we're kind of learning from the connection that these people have so that it can shape and uh, inform our connection. Are you wondering why the teeter-totter is up here? First of all, this is a teeter-totter. It's not a seesaw. We're not hillbillies. Um, Stop thinking about the teeter-totter. We'll get to it in a second. Just stop thinking about the teeter-totter. You remember last week, Susie uh, was preaching, and she talked about this part in in the passage in Philippians where it talks about who we're looking at and how we're seen. And remember, she said this, without seeing each other and being seen by each other, there is no us. That's so important. If you, didn't, if you weren't here last week, go online and watch it. Um, it, it is worth understanding that principle. This week, Paul is going to turn his attention to our inner life, and he's going to say something about the way that we think and the way that we uh, process things and how it will inform our us. Let me illustrate what he is going to say with a story. Um, there's a, a fascinating, a weird but really wonderful little book called Orbiting the Giant Hairball. Um, And I don't know if you've ever read this book, it's worth checking out. What it's about is how do you maintain your sanity and your creativity if you're a part of like a massive corporation where those things are not particularly welcome. Um, If you find yourself in that boat, you should read this book, it's really good. But in that book, this author tells a story that illustrates a point that is so vitally important to us in our relationships, but it's really, really easy to forget. He tells the story of a businessman who purchased a herd of dairy cows He was very excited about all the potential money that he was going to make from all the milk that these cows would produce. And so he gets in his very expensive car and he drives down to the pasture in his very expensive three-piece suit. And he sees all the cows scattered out over the green pasture, just doing what cows do, standing there chewing their cud, and he very quickly becomes irate. As a businessman who is worried about efficiency, he just gets livid, and he stands up on the fence overlooking this pasture, and he starts shouting at his cows. He says, listen, you lazy cows. I don't pay you to stand around chewing your cud. I pay you to make milk. So get to work, right? And it's kind of this weird scene, yes. Um, Now, The cows do what cows do. They just stand there and chew their cud because they don't speak English. Um, So they don't understand what he's saying. But I imagine this, that if they could, they would fire back at this guy. Listen, buddy, moo, however they talk. I don't know how cows talk. Um, Right this very second, we are performing the miracle of turning grass into milk. We know what we're doing. Let us do our job. Leave us alone, Right? And uh, that's the story. It's weird. I told you it was weird. Um, I think we've all experienced a little bit of this dynamic, though, at some point in our lives, where there was somebody who was focused on an external result, and they had no respect or no awareness of the significant internal process that had to happen first for the external result to occur. In this case, the businessman, he just wanted more milk and he didn't respect the fact that the cows need nourishment to produce milk, and so he just wanted to yell at them, make more milk, but that's silly and that's ridiculous because, of course, the cows have to eat so that they have the nourishment necessary to produce milk. It's a silly story, but I think we do this as humans all the time. We we get focused on the external and we largely ignore the significant internal realities swirling under the surface. I think we do this in relationships sometimes. We can get overly focused on another person's behavior, and we're largely ignorant of maybe the internal struggles that inform and shape and produce that behavior. You know, it's worth noting, God doesn't ever make this mistake with us. He never just sees the external. He's always able with us to see both the internal realities as well as the external. And we may see someone's behavior and it just drives us crazy because why would you do that? That's so frustrating. But God is able to see that frustrating behavior and see the internal brokenness and woundedness that's informing that behavior. In fact, God uh, even said about himself in the Old Testament, you might remember this passage, at one point God said, the Lord doesn't look at the things people look at. Gosh, aren't you thankful for that? He says, people look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And the challenge for us in relationships is it is easy to get that backwards and become overly focused on the external and miss the internal. And today what Paul's gonna suggest is that we start caring about the inside and he's gonna point out that there's something that happens internally underneath our relationships that actually makes a huge difference for the external, for the outside relationships. And the challenge for us is to not just look at one another as external, but to see that internal struggle that other peoples have, have and the internal struggle that we have. The struggle is real and it's often an inner struggle. If we don't recognize it, we may find ourselves like that businessman with really unrealistic expectations, wanting a result, but not understanding how to produce it. Paul is going to say, pay attention to something on the inside so we can connect and stay connected. Turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. We're going to look over his shoulder. He's going to help us get past the surface today by giving some instructions to some of his friends And he's going to give us some advice, and uh, specifically there's going to be a verse that you've probably heard before, especially if you were at this church in the spring. Uh, You've definitely heard this verse before, but it's worth revisiting. Look at Philippians 4. We're going to start in verse 1. Paul says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. You can just hear the affection that he has for these people. He says, I Plead with Eodia and I plead with Syntaike, be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. So we don't know all of the details, but there's some sort of a conflict that is happening between these women. And like in all conflicts, the temptation is to get overly focused on the external and to say, well, just change. Stop doing that behavior. It's frustrating. Stop it. Paul's not going to think that way. Paul's going to actually push the Philippians to help these women, but also to be aware of what's happening on the inside. And he's going to hit them with this exhortation, which you've probably heard before, but maybe never realized that it was given in the context of conflict resolution. Look at verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So he's talking about conflict resolution, and he switches, and suddenly he's talking about joy and gentleness and worry and peace, uh, like internal peace, guarding our heart and minds. He starts talking about the inner life, a life below the surface. And I think he's connecting this to this conflict. And then he hits them with this. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Now, I've heard that verse a lot. Um, We, you know, we did a seven-week series in the spring on that verse. We went through the 4-8 principle and talked a lot about how we think, and the gist of it was that our thinking shapes our life. I don't know that I've ever connected this verse to conflict resolution, but that's the context that Paul's talking about. So I don't want to rehash those seven-week series. If you want to know what we said, go back. It's all online. You can listen to it. But I want us to consider these verses from a slightly different angle and, and consider the implication that these have for our relationships because I think they have enormous implications. I think this is something we need to consider, that maybe the most important part of our relationships is what happens inside our head. Maybe the most important part of our relationships is what happens inside of our head. And this us that we long for is somehow going to be connected to something that is happening in our head. I think that's what Paul is saying. Don't overlook what nourishes those relationships. It's your thoughts. Now, I I think what Paul says here, it's, it's not just insightful. I actually think it is next level brilliant stuff. The Bible's brilliant, and particularly here, this is brilliant. And I think to really understand the brilliance of what Paul is saying, science can actually be a little bit helpful here, in particular neuroscience. And I want us to look at this from a slightly different angle, from the angle of neurology, which is something that Paul didn't have access to in his day. uh, But that just makes this all the more brilliant. Let me explain a great book out there. Uh, I would encourage you to read it. It's just, if you're fascinated by the stuff like I am, it's worth reading. It's called How God Changes Our Brain, and it's written by a neuroscientist, uh, Andrew Newberg, and a business professor, Mark Waldman. Basically, these two guys, they set out to study how does religion affect our brains. Is it a positive effect or is it a negative effect? Um, And Now, neither of these guys are Christians. They were just doing this purely as scientists, just curious, what would be the impact of this? And they make some fascinating conclusions. For instance, right off the bat, they say this. Recently, there's been a spate of anti-religious books that argue that religious beliefs are personally and societally dangerous. But the research, as we will outline throughout this book, strongly suggests otherwise. It's interesting. They go on to say this, if you take the most conservative assessment of hundreds of medical, neurological, psychological, sociological studies on religion, two conclusions are evident. So first, involvement with religious and spiritual activities generally does no harm unless, and this is a huge caveat throughout the whole book, unless you focus on an authoritarian God who fills you with anger and fear. That's fascinating. They have a second conclusion. That spiritual activities permanently strengthen neural functioning in specific parts of the brain that are involved in lowering anxiety and depression, enhancing social awareness and empathy, and improving cognitive and intellectual functioning. That's a big sentence. What does all that mean? Well, the short version is this. What they discovered is that faith is good for our brain. But it actually has a positive impact on the brain. Now unless, and this is the caveat, that faith is in an authoritarian God who generally dislikes everyone and is eager to send all the wicked sinners to hell. Like that's destructive to your brain. But lucky for us, that God doesn't exist. What the Bible tells us is that God so loved the world that he gave, that God desires that no one would perish, that God would rather give up his own life than live without you in his life. And because of that, that, that faith in that God is actually surprisingly healthy for our brain and does some amazing things. They came to this conclusion, not by studying the Bible or anything that we would do, but they actually uh, would do neuroscans scans on people before, during, and after they did spiritual and religious activities. Um, here's what they looked at. This is your brain. Uh, it's not your brain. I mean, it, could, it might be your brain, but this is a brain. Um, As you know, our brains are, it's like one thing, but there's different parts to the brain and different parts function and do different things at different times. Now, that's important because when we're doing something spiritual or religious, it's activating these different areas in our brain. Neurons are firing and these guys kind of studied, well, which parts of the brain are active when you're doing spiritual stuff like we just did, like we were just worshiping? What part of the brain is firing during that time? Now, there's three structures that are really relevant. Bear with me while I explain what little I know of neurology here. There's three structures in the brain that are relevant. The first is this, it's the limbic system. It's kind of in the middle of your head. Um, And this is made up of the amygdala, the hippocampus, the hypothalamus, the thalamus, as you know. Um, (laughs) This part of your brain controls a lot of emotions, especially really powerful emotions like fear and anger. This is fight or flight. That's where this part is, uh, what this part controls. Um, This is the oldest part of our brain. This is the part of the brain that we have in common with most animals. Most animals have a limbic system like we do. They call it the reptile brain, because even reptiles have this part uh, in their brain. Um, What's fascinating about the limbic brain is it's designed to be incredibly fast and incredibly efficient. And the way that it works um, is like if a bear, like a ferocious bear, came charging through those doors we wouldn't even have to consciously think I should get up out of my chair. That's a bear who could kill me. And I should run, right? There is no thought involved. Our bodies would be moving literally before we even thought about it. And that's thanks to the the limbic system. That's the center kind of part of our brain. It controls a lot of that stuff. We all feel fear in the same way. We feel anger in the same way. And we react to those emotions almost instantly, thanks to this incredibly efficient part of our brain. It's a good thing we have that because it helps us not die all the time. limbic system there's a second part of the brain though that's relevant and it's the frontal lobe that's this part kind of up in the top of your head there Um, this part of your brain, it governs things like language and logic and creativity and compassion. This is the part of your brain that is the most uniquely human and makes us the most different from all the other animals on the planet. The the frontal lobe, it does incredible amazing stuff, but what's unique about the frontal lobe or what sets it apart from the limbic system is it's much more slow, it's much more nuanced than the limbic brain. So the limbic brain is fast. We all feel fear and anger in generally the same way. The frontal lobe is very slow and it takes some time so things like compassion or love it takes a while to develop those qualities and when we would describe those qualities to one another we would describe them in all different ways whereas fear we would all generally describe in the same way this is the most nuanced and subjective part of our brain now there's one other part that's really relevant and it's this uh, part that's highlighted right about there Um, I don't know that if that's in the middle right or left Uh, The limit of my neurology uh, is what we're up against here. But that's an area that connects kind of the frontal lobe to the limbic system. And it's called the anterior cingulate. I've never heard of this until I read these guys' book, but I found it fascinating. That part of our brain controls stuff like social awareness, intuition, empathy. And what they found was this, is that when you're doing a spiritual activity, like you're praying or you're worshiping or doing something like that, that it's actually this part of the brain that is most active and that is most strengthened by that activity. Now, that's relevant because it serves as kind of a fulcrum between the frontal lobe and the limbic system. In other words, it it kind of connects the two, and it makes uh, there's kind of a balance between the two. And that is where our teeter-totter comes in. If you have not understood anything that I've said up until now, that's okay. I didn't get it the first time either. Let me break it down to you like this. You have a teeter-totter in your head. Um, It's a metaphor. You have a teeter-totter in your head. And it's between the limbic system, which would be on one side of the teeter-totter, and the frontal lobe, which would be on the other side of the teeter-totter. And there's this fulcrum in the middle, which is called the anterior cingulate. And it kind of governs the activity between these. Now, there's a reciprocal relationship because of the anterior cingulate between the limbic system and the frontal lobe. And so when the limbic system is really active, the frontal lobe quiets down. And when the frontal lobe is really active, the limbic system quiets down. It's relevant, you maybe have experienced this, like if you're really angry at someone, uh, you actually, your ability to have logic, reasoning, and even talk decreases. We're all stupid when we're angry, this is why. Because the limbic system is firing in the frontal lobe that controls all of these things that make us very human and able to have compassion and empathy and all that sort of stuff. It's kind of quiet, but the reverse is true. If you're viewing someone and seeing below the surface and viewing them with empathy, seeing the brokenness that's in all of us, then you're less able to feel afraid in that moment because the limbic system is very quiet because your frontal lobe is very engaged. And all of that back and forth is thanks to this piece of our brain called the anterior cingulate. Um, Here's what I'd like us to consider. What Paul says is not just a spiritual truth, but it's a medical truth. Uh, When we intentionally cultivate thoughts about good things, then we intentionally quiet thoughts about destructive things. Our brain becomes healthier, and thanks to this part of our brain, it quiets those parts of our our brain that are very bad at relationships. We become better able to have empathy, better able to connect with others. We become better able to be aware of God, and, and the reverse is true. The, the limbic system is very bad at us. It's very bad at connecting. And when we feed our brains fear and anger and worry and all that sort of stuff, then those parts of our brains that are the most human, we become less able to access them consistently and build those connections with others. So Paul, he says to his friends, hey, brothers and sisters, whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's admirable, if anything's excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Bring those things to the forefront of your mind, and the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now, what he didn't know is you could actually hook somebody up to a neural scan, and you could observe this. Uh, These scientists did that. They studied these monks who were engaging in meditation and they described this moment where they feel like this peaceful union with God and they discovered that the same part of their frontal lobe was active every single time in all of them. And you know what was very quiet? The limbic brain. The teeter-totter was tipped or maybe it was the other way. I don't know. I'm losing the metaphor, but you get the idea. That when we cultivate those thoughts about the right thing, it actually does something in our brain. Paul says, think about these excellent things. 2,000 years later, Andrew Newberg would add maybe this to Paul's words. He said this fascinating statement. However, if you obsess on your doubts and worries, your emotional limbic system will slow down those parts of the frontal lobe that generate logic, empathy, and pleasure. Simple seesaw effect. Love goes up, fear goes down. Anger goes up, compassion goes down. If you focus on a benevolent God, the authoritarian God recedes. I find this stuff fascinating. Um, Maybe you don't. Let's think about our cows for a second. Think about our cows. On the surface, they're doing nothing. Under the surface, they are performing the miracle of transforming grass to milk. Think about your relationships. However they look on the surface, that us that you long for, that us that God created you for, In the same way that eating and digesting grass produces milk, the thoughts that you fill your mind with are gonna produce a quality of relationships. They're gonna produce your us. What you think about doesn't just affect you, it affects us. And the people who find an us, who, who find these deeply connected, loving relationships, they're able to consistently tip that teeter-totter back again and again away from fear, away from anger, away from those things that sabotage human relationships. I think we need to consider what Paul says Uh, is that when we cultivate the best parts of our brain, our capacity for love grows. That's not just a spiritual truth, it's a medical truth. So Paul says, think about certain things. Cultivate these parts of your brain. He doesn't know any of this stuff. I don't, you know, I don't even think they had teeter-totters back then, um, much less neuroscience. Um, but the Bible has always been a little bit ahead of its time. What's fascinating is the Bible is always encouraging us, hey, there is this way of life that if you cultivate it, you will begin to be transformed. You will begin to change. There are patterns of life and patterns of behavior. And so as believers, as a church, we do things like worship and pray and we study scripture and we meditate and we give financially and we do Sabbath rest and we serve and we forgive one another. And we do all these things that we call spiritual disciplines or just spiritual activities. And the Bible says that those things will transform us in certain ways. What's absolutely fascinating to me is that neuroscience would confirm some of the same things, not using the Bible, but just by using brain scans. They began to discover that some of those same activities begin to do something in our brains that make us better able to be who God created us to be. In fact, these guys identified eight activities that rewire our brain for compassion and empathy. And in, in their words, they said, it transforms your inner reality. And I, their list is so incredibly affirming about what we believe about journeying with God. I, l- let me just give you the top four real quick, in order, in reverse order. Number four, they said, the fourth most helpful thing that we can do to cultivate a healthy brain is meditate. Now, they just define that as fixed, intentional, focused thinking. And they said this even 10 to 15 minutes of meditation appears to have significant, significantly positive effects on cognition, relaxation, psychological health, and it's even been shown to reduce smoking and binge drinking behavior. Not bad, right? And they're very careful to qualify. You have to meditate on the right things. This is where Paul's brilliance is revealed. Paul says, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy. And so when we fix our minds on the love of God, or when we uh, bring to mind key scriptures, or we fix our minds on forgiving someone, or even if we just, uh, for 10 minutes a day, we just hold the reality of the thought in our mind that in Christ I am accepted. And just focus on that for 10 minutes. That changes our brain and we become neurologically healthier and better able to tip that teeter-totter back again and again. That was the fourth one. The third one, they said, was aerobic exercise. Not like aerobics, but they said vigorous exercise. It strengthens every part of the brain. In general, the more intense, the better. It can even be viewed as a form of meditation because it involves sustained concentration and regulation of body movements and breathing. It's like that one verse in the Bible that says we should all do CrossFit. It's, it's in there, don't question me, I'm a pastor. Um, I, you know, we, we've thought about this, we've even talked about this as a staff, you know, I don't know, what do we do, like 10 burpees between every song or what, you know, how do you build this into a worship service? I, I don't know that there is a way, but we understand this, that there's some connection between how we think and between our spiritual life and our physical body. And there's something there that God created those things somehow to work together and to explore the connections between those sorts of things. And they're saying, yeah, that, that has an impact on your brain. Number two, they said dialogue with others. And I was so encouraged. This is a huge part of what church has always been about. Whether it's a Sunday school class or a small group or a worship service, this has always been part of the rhythms of God's people. It's what we do. We get together, we interact, and we talk over important things, over significant things. And it turns out that's the second most helpful thing that we can do from a neurological perspective. They said this, dialogue, it requires social interaction, and the more social ties we have, the less our cognitive abilities will decline. In fact, any form of social isolation, loneliness, will damage important mechanisms in the brain leading to aggression, depression, and various neuropsychiatric disorders. You know, what they're saying there, it's it's worth just pausing and noting. Some people are not jerks. They're just really lonely, right? They're just really lonely. And consistently, their limbic system is driving the car. So they live with fear and anger and frustration and because of their loneliness, their, their lack of connection, they just they don't treat people very well. And it's worth recognizing that that's what's going on inside. But when we pursue this dialogue with others, real dialogue, it makes our brain healthier. We're more able to be who God created us to be. The last one, and I, I was most fascinated by this. Non-Christian people, not necessarily people of faith, uh, but they studied this for years and they decided, do you want to know what the healthiest thing that you can do for your brain is from a neurological perspective? This is their word. They just said faith. And they defined it as, uh, it's the ability to trust our beliefs even when we have no proof that such beliefs are accurate or true. It's fascinating. It's a pretty good definition. What they're saying is, when we make a conscious choice to believe that we are forgiven even when we don't feel like it, to believe that God is good even when something bad happens to us, to believe that he loves us even when we're struggling with an issue that's one of the healthiest things that we can do for our brain and for our life. Paul, he's writing to his friends in Philippi and he says, guys, listen, there's some conflict. I want you to pay attention to what's happening on the inside. And when you're anxious, I want you to respond in prayer with faith. I want you to list things you're thankful for. I want you to think about excellent or praiseworthy things. He knew nothing about this teeter-totter inside of our heads. He knew nothing about neuroscience and uh, that just makes the brilliance of Paul, all the more astounding. He's giving them some of the best practices that they could do to cultivate health. What does that all mean for us? Well, I I think it's this simple. If you want to find an us, if you want to find deeply connected relationships, then we have to recognize that there are certain practices and rhythms of life that we have to cultivate. There are certain things that we just have to build into our normal life. They have to be a part of our life in order to have these relationships we all long for. And maybe some of those things, maybe there's something on the list that they had. Maybe uh, you want to give some meditation a try. Maybe you want to pick up vigorous exercise. I think for all of us, we need to recognize those top two things we have to build into our life. that, That dialogue with other people about important things, things that matter, and that choice to believe God even when there's evidence to the contrary in our life or evidence to the contrary in our heart, that those things make us healthier, they make us better able to connect, and they actually do something inside of our brain that's the best possible thing. If we want to find an us, we've got to embrace some practices and we've got to embrace some patterns of life. You know, that's one way to really think about what we do here at church. Uh, You know, what do we do at church? We get together, we sing, we do some stuff. You know, we can think of it in terms of just, well, I'm supposed to go to church. Or we could think of it this way, that we are a people. We're the people of God, and we gather together around a way of life. We gather together around some practices and some rhythms of life that we believe that even in this book written 2,000 years ago, that somehow it was ahead of its time and that those practices and those rhythms that we embrace on a regular basis as a part of our life somehow are the most helpful and the most transforming things that we could do as people. And that's why we gather, is because it's good for us, because it's healthy for us. These rhythms are a part of who we are. That brings us to the table. Um, I want to introduce you to someone this morning uh, that's recently been a part of our community. And I think as a leader, he's someone who can help us think about those rhythms and those practices that we do um, as a community. And he's going to help us shape that over these next few months. Would you guys welcome up Roland Smith? Roland, come on up here. Roland, I wanted to—I so wanted to interview you on the teeter-totter. Um,
0: yeah, I was—I was hoping we would.
1: Well, maybe, yeah.
0: My side would stay down all the time, <laughs> we, though.
1: We may need a bigger teeter-totter. But um, uh, let me tell you briefly about Roland. You met him last week. He led worship. Uh, Roland is one part of a two-part team um, that is here, kind of helping with worship ministry. As you may know, uh, we're in a little bit of a transition with worship ministry. Nick Thacker led this area for years. On the side, he's uh, been writing and great novels, and uh, it's kind of been a, a hobby of his, and now he's going to go pursue that as a full-time career, as a passion. Um, and so we, we were kind of at this transition point asking, where do we go with worship and what we do with worship services? And we kept asking around and hearing two names over and over again, Roland Smith and Cindy Lindberg. Um, And so we said, well, you know, what we really need is someone to just walk with us for a few months, help us figure out where we want to go. Uh, let's talk to these two people. Maybe it'll work out with one of them. What we didn't know is Roland and Cindy have worked together for years and known each other in a lot of different churches, a lot of different contexts, um, and we didn't know just how much we were going to like these two people and how much they were going to bring to the table. And so as we met them, we're like, well, we should ask them both. Maybe just one of them will say yes. And they both said yes. And so they're both stepping in to help with worship. Cindy says hello. She, she had a previous commitment, um, that, so she's not here today. But Roland and Cindy are here for the next really... Months, six months or so, to just help us shape and continue to grow. What do we do when we gather together as a group, right?
0: Yeah, and I think I'm, I'm, uh, we're so excited about the opportunity to walk with Pulpit Rock and actually and be part of Pulpit Rock. Rock. Yeah. I want to say yeah. that too. I mean, we really talk like um, it's our church at least yeah. for a time, and um, it's such an interesting thing when when leadership. When there's a vacuum in leadership they don't just step in and say okay we've got to hire someone and then the person that comes in you say okay what do you want us to do in this area but instead thomas and everyone else said we want to take a journey and we want to discern what what god has for our voice and our rhythm of worship and creative arts at the church and uh cindy and i were i mean it's, it's such a brave move we were super intrigued um that, that Thomas and you and Kyle and everyone would just say, let's take a whiteboard and let's erase it. And let's kind of discern where God wants us to go. And so we're, we are really humbled, uh, to be part of the process. Um, a lot of people kind of look at us and say, oh, well, y'all are the worship experts and we're not, we're, st- we fall just like everyone else. And we're still figuring out our own worship journey. Um, but sometimes it's not that, you know, more than people. It's that you're an outside set of eyes. And so uh, when you're you're part of a community and you get in these rhythms, someone from the outside can ask a lot of why questions that you just forget to. And I've been in the same situation on the other side. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, So, you know, there's so much that we could do. And so much that we do as a church um, that are just kind of our rhythms of life together. And, you know, as we think about what do we need to be doing, what practices, how do we need to engage, ultimately we want to do stuff that transforms us, that helps us journey with God. The worship service is a big part of that. Will you just speak to that? How does worship shape us as, as people? How does that yeah. play a role? Just I to had, transform
0: I to had like. I had like a hundred things going through my mind as you were talking and the teeter-totter and and everything. And um, one of my, um, one of the things that I say is that we we don't come to church to worship, we come worshiping to church. And um, the thing is, is that we, you know, if someone could ask you, um, are you a, a worshiper or do you like worship? You know, and some of us guys would be like, well, I don't, yeah, I don't really like worship. I'm confused
1: by the clapping. I just, Um, I can't, I can't get it right.
0: Here's the truth is, is that we're all worshipers. Uh, From the moment we come out of the womb, we're worshipers. We worship something. Um, All people have been worshipers throughout the ages. Um, And the choice is, do we worship the things of faith, number one, or do we worship idols and that's kind of the large story of scripture that is the th- common thread throughout scripture is is it idol worship or, or worship of God what I was thinking about with the teeter-totter is that a lot of times we put ourselves in the teeter-totter position right is that we we come in a, in a church service and we focus intently on faith and so we worship in that vein right in that environment and then we walk out of this building me too I get caught up in worshiping something else you know I worship um, do I have enough money is my 401k okay are my kids okay or my whatever it is of life and what does it do it sends me right to the limbic right, system right, right? Yeah. and so we are gonna worship no matter what the question is are, are we gonna let the teeter-totter fight itself yeah. kind of like you were saying or when we walk out of this building do we do we attempt to see God in everything or turn to him uh, when life is forcing us you know, or asking us to worship something else? You see what I mean? Yeah,
1: I do. Yeah. Um, well, let me ask you this. You've been around worship a, a lot, you know, obviously vocationally as well as just as, a, as someone who's at a church. What advice do you have in, in just that challenge that is universal for all of us and just kind of taking this worshiping as we go with us so that it's actually, it's out there when we're worried about the, the bills, we're worried about the kids, we're worried about all that sort of stuff. How do you do that? What advice would you give us?
0: Well, I mean, for me, I believe that people, we are all kind of people of rhythm and habit, and um, we all have habits and rhythms in our life. We're, we're, um, our lives are steered by smartphones and calendars and reminders and things like that um, these days. And so I think, you know, spiritual disciplines is kind of what the church, the catchphrase the church has used for really good habits in your life. And um, it helps me uh, to do that as well. So, you know, I try to pay attention to what I'm listening to, what I'm watching, you um, taking space and making time uh, for God. And I don't just get out of the bed and hit the ground running, but I try to take some time in the morning. And whether you want to call it a quiet time or whatever you want to call it, sometimes it's just sitting on the porch with a cup of coffee, just listening. And I I started this morning that way. I didn't crack a Bible. I didn't get real spiritual. I just sat there with my golden retriever and and listened. And um, so I think having built-in things in the rhythm of our life that take us away from the idols and allow us to focus our hearts and minds on God is, is super important. Yeah, keeps the teeter-totter in the right position. Right?
1: Yeah, and what, what was fascinating to me in the book is the way they talked about there's a lingering effect that when we do that sort of stuff in a day, mm-hmm. even just 10 minutes, it stays with us from a neurological standpoint.
0: And, and the opposite. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the other day, I mean, you know, I had it out with another driver. Yeah. You know, they had it out with me and that I was is so
1: unspiritual. And I responded.
0: <laughs> I know, it is I unspiritual. Can't but you know what it did? Okay. It messed up my day yeah. the whole day. I just yeah. felt like I wanna go find that guy and like give him a hug, you know. Right. And so as people of God with the Holy Spirit in us, when we get caught in those limbic situations right. of fear or whatever it is in response, it really does Take control of our lives. So I think for me, it's like, how do I, how do I stay away from that? Right. You know? Right.
1: Well, and I think that's a challenge we all face. We got figuring out those things, those yeah. rhythms, those practices that are part of cultivating this healthy spirituality. Yeah. Um, there are. There are missed days and there are good days. And I think understanding that is a big part of just the journey with God. Would you pray over us in that, specifically in that area, just that each of us as we're on this journey with God would find those things that have to be a part of our life? On a regular basis, those rhythms and those practices.
0: Yeah, I'd love to. Um, And could I get, could could we stand up? We're going to worship anyway. Worship band's going to come up. And in liturgical settings, uh, which I'm not, I didn't really grow up in a liturgical setting, but it's really cool, is um, people are invited to hold their hands out Mm -hmm. and receive and um, and so I just want to invite you to do that, because I'm going to pray for all of us, for me too, and let's just kind of receive what, the God, what God and the Holy Spirit has for us. Uh, Father, we love you, and we stand before you as um, um, your people, your community, um, gathered before you to find rhythm and transformation in our life. Uh, Lord, we are oftentimes uh, taken over by... The world and by fear and by concerns, and um, it overshadows what we want to do in our heart, which is to praise you and to live uh, for your glory. And so, I pray that you would give us strength, uh, that you would give us um, um, the resolve uh, to worship you and not resolve not to worship the idols of life. Uh, may we walk with you, and may we glorify you and praise you in everything that we do, not just in this room, but in all parts of our life. And and we praise you in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Amen.